just isn't mathematically possible. Um, even if you have, you think you have seven perfect answers, your score will not be a seven. It will be likely in the fifties. Um, and the reason for that is, is that whether consciously or unconsciously, the graders will simply say, well, you had more time for those seven answers, therefore I expect more depth. And you're probably not going to be able to provide it. So, do your best to answer every question. Even if it's just a bunch of lightweight stuff like you wrote down the styles and a classic example, you will get partial credit. And that partial credit adds up. It all adds up. Okay. Some time management tips on this. Um, if I will have a clock up in the room, but do bring a watch with a second hand, that kind of thing. So you can just kind of keep a mental eye on what you're doing. Give yourself about 10 minutes per question. That's going to be about the right amount of time. You're going to take about 10 minutes to evaluate each beer. It's only 180 minutes long, so 40 minutes of that to evaluate the beer um, is gone. And the rest of it is your writing of the questions. Don't write out the questions on the, on the exam. That's just wasting time. The graders get a copy of the exam. They know the questions. You don't have to rewrite them. You just write Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4. You're going to have the program question with a cover sheet, and you're going to fill that out. You've seen the cover sheet. You've seen it a couple of times. That's it. That's what it looks like. Um, you'll have the ethics questions. That's a group of true false questions. You should be able to finish those out in about five minutes. It should take you half the time. That's why I quizzed you on it, pushed it on you. So right now, who can give me the complete answer of the three purposes of the BJCP? See, that's where, but nice try. 
Um, that's where the devil is in the details. You want to get that one right because it's an easy 10%. So for that, because the devil's in the detail, here is Avery's beast. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Good job. Um, but don't forget that, that to get the ranks, remember that the whole course has been a real chance not many get. Just remember, a real chance not many get, you have apprentice recognized certified national master grandmaster. A real chance not many get. Okay? Um, when you are writing out um, things, you will need to stop and start evaluating the beer. You will go for 60 minutes in the exam, and then the first beer is going to come out, and they're going to come out every 30 minutes after that. Kind of a mental time marker. So after 60 minutes, and it goes quick, first beer comes out, stop and evaluate that beer. So remember, we're going to try to be give tier two and tier three uh, descriptors out of this, so detail. We've been working on that in the class all along. So you guys should know this stuff. You should have a feel for it. Um, no score is going to be less than a 13. There will be at least one severely flawed beer in this to score typically at least 20, if not lower. It won't be so foul that it lingers with you all day, but it'll be memorable. Um, there will be one beer that is an absolute classic example. There will be one beer that is probably miscategorized. Then again, there might not be. That's sort of an optional thing. And there will be at least two beers that are decent. Good beers, good solid beers, kind of right where they ought to be in terms of score, even if they're miscategorized. Yes? So, let's well, say a miscategorized beer, mm -hmm. and we have to judge it as it is categorized. Correct. Should we, on anywhere there, like overall comments or something, note that this appeared to be a different style? Absolutely. You would or say, you would say something that might be more appropriate as, yes. Great in an exam set where they brought out um, a classic example of IPA presented it as American Pale Ale. American Pale Ale is a very hoppy style, but not typically all that hop prominent in aroma, though some are. And just true to style, at least one person said, pretty good beer, not quite hoppy enough. I think it probably could use more hops to be in style. When it was already above style. You know, in the commentary on that, I mean, the guy just scored it wonderfully and then said it could be hoppier. Well, it was a wonderful beer. It was a classic example. It was in good shape. And it would kind of suck being a, being a judge if you didn't like beer. So, you know, you don't want to be that hard on a beer. But this guy, it pretty much hit him where he lived. So be aware of that. On the other hand, don't automatically be a fault finder. Don't be looking for the same faults in every single beer. It just it just shows through big time if you find sourness in every beer or you find astringence in every single beer when it's not there. So don't try to be a fault finder. Just evaluate the beer. Relax. Evaluate the dang beer. Just like we have been here. Um, you know, we're all, we've all grabbed the beer here. We've enjoyed them. They've been pretty good examples. We've had some that have not been in as good a shape. 
We've made that observation and moved on. That's pretty much what this is about. It's not that difficult. Okay? Don't over-describe the beer. Typically, if you spend 10 minutes on that beer, you've evaluated it. You're there. You're done. After that, you start over-evaluating. You start trying to find extra layers of stuff. You over-describe the beer. You work too hard on it. Um, it's just, you, you know, and then you've spent too much time and too much effort on something that you really don't have to. Uh, the proctors are going to spend about 10 minutes evaluating the beer. I will tell you that we have three extremely good proctors lined up for this event. I'm very proud of who's coming. Um, and uh, you, you will have a very, very, very fair evaluation of your beers. They're going to be excellent eyes and noses and tongues for the, uh, for the graders. Um, okay. Intermediate step there, which is probably in here somewhere. Um, it says don't let the lack of familiarity on one style phase you. Um, one of the first things you can do is spend just a couple of minutes. Again, if you're good on doing that question 1A and 1B, where you've got the ranks and the purpose of the BGCP, and then do read the, the the answers very carefully on the true-false, because one word can change an entire meaning. You know, is or is not appropriate kind of thing. So pay attention to that. You should do pretty well on that. Um, because you've actually seen all three of the sheets that are available for the true-false questions. You guys have had all of them. That's the whole question board. Summarized in three sheets. Um, take a few seconds. Read the questions. Jot down the first things that come to mind. Just one word, two word things in there. Just that those little details that you know you want to cover and the things that you know about it. You know, oh, that style, Munich, Malt, okay, Noble Hops, cool. That's sort of a checklist, and that's what you're going to build your answer on later. Go through and do that. Uh, if you don't understand one particular question, skip it for a moment, or skip that style. You leave yourself space on a page and skip it, and just continue on. Take the low-hanging fruit first. Take the easy stuff first. Because, believe it or not, that will get you revving up. It will get you going. You will then be able to pull out a lot of details. And in fact, there's an awful lot of interrelationships in the questions. A lot of the troubleshooting questions kind of have some things to do with some of the styles that are there. And since you have the tasting score sheets, you can look at those and go, oh yeah, aroma. I need to cover hops and esters. And Does this style have esters? Does it have any other aromatics? Does it have any? You can use that. If you get the question that like I sent out this last time, what are body and mouthfeel? Body is one component of mouthfeel. But mouthfeel encompasses body, carbonation, astringence, fullness, creaminess, dryness, hop bite. All of those things encompass what your, your mouth feels. So that's the difference between body and mouthfeel. Mouthfeel is all of those little things. You just write that out, and you, you've got the answer, basically. It's, on, it's already there. 
So look for the clues in the questions. Look for some of the interrelationships. Because that will help you shorthand some things that, you know, uh, if they start to ask for things that are similar, you can say as described in question number two or question number three kind of thing. You can refer back to another question so you're not rewriting the same information each time. Um, one style is a three and a half point maximum. Um, the essay portion is 70% of your overall grade. 30% of it is the tasting. Um, so pay attention to recipe and to the uh, ranks and requirements and the classic styles question. That's going to be the last page. It's going to look like a score sheet. And it's going to say, describe as if you were tasting a classic style of blank. And it can be any style out of the guidelines. So the one thing you want to avoid on that sheet is hops low to medium. Well, you would want to say in this particular style, hops are low. Uh, or medium, medium hop bitterness, moderate hop flavor. You know, words you would use if you were actually evaluating a beer, not words out of the guidelines. Okay? So that's going to be one of the important things. You get those three out of the way, that's 30 points. You're halfway to passing. Yes? Okay. So for the odds rolling the dice, there's a very good chance that a style will come up with absolutely little to no idea about. Better to attempt to go ahead and answer it or leave it blank. I mean, do they count against you if they're like way off base? Trying to answer a question, or well, you don't want to bullshit your way through an answer because you know the everything, every resource you have, the graders have. They can look at the style guidelines. They can look up texts and other information, and chances are they're pretty good at at, at grading, and they're pretty good at brewing. They're pretty good at judging. Um, so don't completely bullshit your way through something. But you can say, I'm unfamiliar with the style, but my recollection of it is black. Well, that's what I mean. The one hit me was like Rogan beer. Never even read the style guidelines for a Rogan beer. I mean, by my guess, I guess I could say it's a German lager, powdered kale. You know, go with, I could go with sort of the same kind of Pilsner thing that's going along with most of the German ones are kind of like that. And it's yeah. Well, Rogan beer is interesting. Did you ever look it up in the style guidelines? Not yet. Um, well, Rogan beer is rye beer. It's German rye beer, and it tends to take on a tawny color. And it's something I remember that I well, I remembered I forgot to talk about last last class. I actually made a couple of errors last class that I have to correct. Um, I didn't talk about Rogan beer. Rogan beer is made the same way as wheat beer. It's 50% rye, but because of rye's darker color, it can take on a reddish hue on into Bach-like color. But typically, it has a really prominent spiciness from the, the rye. Plus, they typically use the same hefeweizen and yeast. Or there might be milder versions of it that use basically either a, a lager yeast or a, a neutral ale yeast, like a Kolsch yeast, so that it's not quite as spicy and as easy to drink. They'll make a milder version. It does utilize noble hops, just like wheat beer would, German wheat. Um, so Rogan beer is German rye beer. Made, for all intents and purposes, the same as a German wheat beer, just with rye. 
Um, principally a bunny, it's going to be chewier in mouthfeel, it's going to be uh, darker in color, it's going to be richer in flavor. They're pretty stand-up ears. There just aren't any real commercial examples, although Paul Inner does make one. Paul Inner makes a Rogan beer. It's not imported, but they make one. Um, the other thing was somebody, I, we were talking about uh, wheat beer last year, Belgian, Belgian wheat. And somebody made the comment of um, it using unmalted wheat in there, and I erroneously corrected them and said, no, it's malted. It does use unmalted wheat, although most of the modern examples right now are using malted wheat. Uh, Hoogarten and others by Interbrew are made with malted wheat, um, just with no protein rest, so they keep all the proteins. Um, but so as a result, what would what would would you be able to tell the difference between a yeah? Because if it actually malted? has unmalted wheat, it's going to actually look whiter in the glass. Okay. Wheat means white, so you know it should be almost milky white. Um, and typically, they're golden with a with a strong haze, and that's simply because of protein, not starch, that's left over. Um, Belgians do like to use a portion of unmalted wheat in where they can because it's cheap. So Lambic and others. But it also happens to give an awful lot of food to sour pieces. So fresh. Alright, so that's my, my two corrections. Thanks for bringing that up. But yeah, I did throw out that question about Rogan beer because it'll show up. It'll absolutely show up. Um, I got tripped up by Belgian Blonde Ale on an exam, not a style I would normally even care to look at, because Blondales are essentially alcohol delivery devices, either American or Belgian. And I erroneously linked it up with, you know, had described it wrong. Um, Belgian Blondale is essentially a light version of Triple. It has a lot of the same flavors, a lot of the same characteristics, a lot of the same color, just lighter version. And it's a ubiquitous beer in Belgium. It's in every bar. In these days, so is Budweiser. But you still get a lot of Belgian Belgian bars. Uh, okay, one important thing. Come ready. Uh, use the bathroom before the exam. Um, have had something to eat, but probably not something to eat just before you walk in the door but have had something to eat that, that morning that really settles things, makes it easier to concentrate, helps a ton, uh, and use the bathroom before we get started. Because honestly, you get up, and you go to the bathroom, you come back, three or four minutes may have passed, and that's a third of a question. So again, the, time, the clock does not stop just because you do. Um, I talked about the interrelationships of styles. Um, use of tables. Tables is really cool because you can go aroma, flavor, mouthfeel, appearance, key ingredient, and sim similarities, differences. And you give yourself some space, more space than I'm giving up here. Obviously, you're going to write the most under flavor and the most under aroma. And you may have the most to say in similarities and differences. But separate them out where you have beer one, 
Here are two. Here are three. Doing these tables. You can write out real quickly aromatic attributes of it. Moderate hop, noble hop, you know, no hop aroma, no diacetyl, that kind of thing. You can write that in real, real short bursts of energy, short sentences, um, going on down the list. And then you kind of see what some of the contrasts are. Anyway, and there's your differences. Um, one of the classic questions that comes up is ordinary bitter, special bitter, and extra special bitter. And you're asked to compare and contrast them. And basically the contrast is alcohol strength, hopping, you know, balance moves more and more towards the hops and less and less towards the malt as you move up the scale. But it's easier to do that in a table and kind of talk about these things because the similarities are they're all English pale ales. They all use the same yeast. They're all going to be fruity. The key ingredient, moderately hard water, ale yeast, English hops in every case. Or key process, infusion mesh, that kind of thing. That's one of the things to remember. Loggers are going to, in a lot of cases, a key process is going to be lagering and perhaps decoction mesh. So it's a good way to add some depth, just real quickly. State the obvious. Um, Remember the, few, the beers that you've had here. Remember the things that you've tasted over time because that's going to really show through in your descriptions. Okay? Your experience tasting. Not just parroting the guidelines. But really kind of knowing the beers. Um, your experience in brewing certain styles is going to show through in key processes and, and ingredients. And in your depth. Notice what's missing from all of these. And that is stats. Stats in terms of grading, in terms of um, their importance, have been significantly downplayed um, over the last three years since the rewrite of the exams. And basically, stats are good if you, if you know them, put them in there. You pretty much only have to be in the ballpark. You don't have to be 100% accurate, although accurate stats are impressive. They can help you identify the beers a little bit. Original gravities, and what we just talked about with the three different English pale ales. The starting original gravities. Maybe some IBUs. Those things kind of help you describe it and make a little more differences. However, don't worry about it if you don't remember. Don't even think about it. Describe the color as a color. Golden, amber, that kind of thing. Not in SRM numbers. Um, stats are, you know, if somebody's going for a 90, stats can kind of put them over the top. But they're not going to make the difference between a 60 and a 70. Yes? The stats, can you just name it? It would be about this instead of having to name the range of it? It would be best to name the range. If you're going to name stats, or you can just say averages at this rate, you know, at this gravity, original gravity, or alcohol level, or something like that. Okay? When you write them out like this, 
your answer will take up about a page, half a page to a page. That's a, that is an appropriate size. Half a page of an answer is typically enough detail to pass to get a six. A little bit more, a little bit more detail, that kind of thing, you're gonna, the, the scores are going to go up as long as it's relevant detail. Don't go waxing on about a pub crawl that you went on and you had this somewhere in Dusseldorf with, you know, it, that's irrelevant information and doesn't actually talk about the beer. Just make sure that you describe the beer, okay? Talking about where it comes from or anything like that is good detail, good depth, but again, it doesn't describe the beer. Um, so half a, half a page is about the right length to pass. A full page is generally a pretty good answer in the seven or eight range, depending upon your economy of words and ability to communicate. And if you're able to go on for a page and a half or so, that's usually in the eight to nine range. And that's that's about as, as good as it gets. Once you're over a page and a half, you're probably using up too much time. Okay? Unless you're a really fast writer. But please, write legibly. Okay? If, if we can't decipher your writing, it's exactly the same as not writing anything at all. Okay? Poorly written or stuff we have to decipher, it's the same as if nothing was written because we can't understand it. We don't know what you said. And honestly, who's taking the test? Not the graders. You'll never win that fight. <laughs> you will never make the, win anything if you make the graders work for understanding your answers. Um, that's true of using formulas without completing the formula, plugging it in. That's true of stating some sort of obscure fact that they got to run for the books for. That's okay, but if everything is like that, then it becomes, all right, well, if you're so good at this, where's the rest of this stuff that, we're, that needs to be talked about as well? Um, and you'll get hammered on your answer stuff. We talked about taking the low-hanging fruit, which means taking the exam questions out of order. Start each question on a new page. Okay? Every single question started on a brand new page. You can go back later on and number your pages. But just make sure that you write Q1, Q2, Q3 at the top. That'll tell you what order they got to go in. Um, and then take the questions from your easiest to your hardest. And it will, it will make a huge amount of difference in the ease of the exam for you. Um, and we talked about clear writing. Printing is, is highly desirable over strict handwriting, um, you know, cursive kind of stuff. Um, this kind of addresses exactly what you were talking about. Be careful about being adamant about your answers. Uh, it's okay to say, I'm not sure, or possibly, eh, kind of about in this range. That's a better communication of your actual knowledge than saying, it's definitely right here. Think about how that might play out at an, at an evaluation table when you're judging. Oh, the style is exactly right here. And somebody else opens up the guidelines and says, no, it's not. No, 
you have to backtrack, like I did tonight. Um, you know, incorrect or obvious guesses work against you. A very good answer, a nine-point answer, is not necessarily a perfect answer. There is always more that can be asked for. Always. There's always things that can be critiqued in every answer. The graders know that you have a finite amount of time. They take that into consideration. We are looking for clear communication and depth of understanding in the answers, and we make the evaluations based on that. Um, get the main points across, because that's where the meat of your points are. The details are great. That doesn't mean, just because you know the trivia about something, does not mean that you actually understand the concept that you're being asked about. Okay? In terms of where beer styles originate, or cities, or anything like that, that doesn't mean that you actually understand the beer, unless you describe it or actually understand the process that's being asked for. Um, a little bit there about, you know, excess words that just waste words, wasted time. We talked about completeness. We talked about content. Um, On the last page, the point breakdown is on here. The 6211. I've said it over and over and over again. 60% of your grade is in aroma, appearance, flavor, and mouthfeel. Two points is a key ingredient or key aspect, which could be style background, could be hops, or you know, could be the, the ingredients, or it could be the uh, particular production methods involved. If there are major aspects that cross all three, then all three are important. But if they're not, um, then it's, you know, you, you only have to cover what has to be covered. Um, one good thing to note about stuff is, is the beer an ale or a lager? You know, this is an ale style, or this is a lager style. Show that you understand that. Um, like I said, state the obvious. Um, classic example. We talked about looking for classic examples. We talked about um, that stuff. I don't know if I passed out the classic example quiz. I know I didn't bring it tonight. I don't think I passed it out. I gave it to the other class, but I didn't do this one. Know your classic examples. It's 10% of any question. It's an easy point. Then you only need one. And you only need one. Two or three is fine. You'll still get the point. But if you've got one that's wrong, it, it just takes a little bit of the, uh, the luster off of your answer. <clears throat> But you'll generally still get full credit as long as you get at least one involved. We need to pass out a few more. Thank you, Okay. Did you guys already get the uh, the styles to study? We got an email. All the styles that are on here. Yeah. Yeah. We'll use this and write down a classic example. 
guys already have this, then let's turn this into a quiz. I don't think I got it. You're all taking the tasting I don't have an extra pencil on me. You guys should be bringing this to class. Yeah, no, Didn't no. Tekum browbeat you guys over that? <laughs> when he was here? Yeah, he does. There you go. All right. I'm going to take 10 minutes. Can I use that pen? Sure. And the person who comes up with the most, anybody else? I got one spare pencil. So, um, Whoever comes up with the most number of examples in the next 10 minutes will win a fabulous prize. What about like the impartial names? If, like, if, uh, let's say that the, a lot of times it might be a brewery name followed by the style. You know what I mean? Yeah. What if you leave off a portion? Will they give it to you? Uh, yes, but they'll say it's more correctly known as blank. Like, they'll get at least partial credit. You want to name the, the brewery and the, and the beer name. Unless it's perfectly obvious in the, uh, the Pilsner or Cal. Did I give an answer? strategy on this test, go for the low-hanging fruit, all the ones that you know first, they go back and do the hard ones.
one minute. You guys went right straight for the uh, Scottish Elves. Just went Bellhaven, sixty seven eighty. <laughs> Anybody? Bellhaven, we heavy. Yeah, I mean that's one of the places where you can go strike to and say, oh yeah, Bellhaven makes one of everything. <laughs> Pretty easy. Um, well, that's what some of these. I mean, you could, you could name the. Producer, but you like some of the Belgians, you know, like Chimay, that may forget which one is which label is which. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. Blue label, red label. Best mm -hmm. mall's good for a double and triple. Mm -hmm. Anybody get one for Mile? Yeah. Number forty. Goose Island. PMB. Who said? Who said brains? brains? Excellent. Brains what? Brains, brains dark. Goose Island, PMD. Most silent PMD would be another one. Is Old Spec with Anima? Hmm? Old Spec with Anima? No, that is not a mild. That's a, a pale of, It's actually an ordinary, more standard bigger. It's golden in color. Doesn't classify as a brown ale. Mild is a brown ale. How many went for Doppelbach? Salvatore? Optimator? Did you say Tor? Brewery, too, right? Hmm? Name the brewery, too, right? Name the brewery if you can, yeah. All Inner Salvatore. Exactly. Who makes Optimator? Very good. Very, very good. Who got as far as Vienna Lager? Two away. What'd you name for Vienna Lager? Very good. Very, very good. Dosa Keys is no longer a classic Vienna lager. It's simply an amber lager. Sometimes it just doesn't seem right. But Negra Modelo is still considered a classic. Anybody finish all? Yeah. Whirling. What'd you put for Dusseldorf Hulk here? Zoomerige. Uh, Zoomerige, okay. That's one of the classics. Um, Northern Germany. What did you put for cream now? Genesee. Genesee or? Huh? Kings. Little Kings? Little Kings, you know, yeah. Anybody miss California Common? <laughs> Berliner Weiss. Schultz Weiss. Schultz, okay. Or? Berliner Kindled, yeah. How about Rauchbier? 
Schlinkerla. Yeah, that's the archetype. Um, interesting thing about that is Rochbeer, in my opinion, is one of the places where we have a pretty big error going on in the uh, style guidelines because we classify it strictly as an Oktoberfest, when by German standards, Rochbeer simply means any smoked beer. And I just picked up some Schlinkerla Erbach. So it's a Bach-style beer that's been smoked, bigger than the Merzen, which they usually use, uh, or that we usually get. And if you ever go and you investigate it, you'll find out they smoke Pilsners, or they smoke Havelweizen. You know, pretty much if it's a beer, it goes through their smoker. Ordinary bitter. What's a classic example of ordinary Bonington's. bitter? Boddington's. Boddington's. Okay. Okay. Old ale. Gales. Prize old. Thomas Hardy. Thomas Hardy's been bumped up to um, to barley wine. North Coast old stock. Stock ales are the Americanized sort of version. They're a little hoppier. Oatmeal stout. Sam Smith's. Sam Smith's, yeah, that's a, that's a classic. Okay, so, <coughs> who had 60 examples that you're pretty comfortable with? Grant did. Okay, Grant, how far did you get? Uh, I just stopped writing a traditional box, but skipped around. Yeah. You're big on bells, aren't you? Yeah, I like them. Looks pretty good. Thanks. And who got as far as 50 examples? Anybody with 50? 45? Got 46? You feel pretty comfortable with them? I was wrong with Thomas Hardy. They are exactly what you would see on an exam. And if you just take 10 minutes to write what you get from memory, and then go back in and look at the uh, style guidelines, um, or look up 
you know, Michael Jackson book or something like that about these about these beers, the descriptors will all fill themselves in. Um, look through. You haven't been given, you know, I haven't put out every question that's in the example, but that's all in your study guide. That's how the questions come. And that this is a tough test, but all of the questions are known. And that's a really important factor. So don't overlook it. That's done. Anybody have any questions about, uh, about things? No questions? Come on, guys. I'm not that complete. <laughs> Yes, but no. Um, if we can understand what you're talking about, spelling does not. But if you are wildly wrong, spelling counts. I mean, don't spell beer with one e. Don't spell. Don't spell. You could spell it with an i. Don't spell odor with a u. So. You know, some basic spelling, cool. But if you can't spell Cantillon, or you can't spell Gen Lane, or you can't spell decoction, it won't really, it won't really count against you. Now, don't spell decoction with a K. <laughs> but it won't really Plus count against you. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure they cover each and every little part. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's a, it's a great little great little tip if that's what it takes for you to get or feel like you're complete. Okay? Uh, remember that when describing beer, it is exactly the same as we've talked about in evaluating beer. It is okay to state what is there. It is okay to state what isn't there. No DMS, no diacetyl, no hop aroma, no, you know, that kind of thing. It's perfectly appropriate and it shows depth. So remember that those are two very valid points of view. Good? consistent in turning in homework at least. Cool. Didn't give it to me all at once. You've been giving it to me all at once. <laughs> Which I like. <laughs> let me give you much better feedback. Do you remember last week when we were talking about beers and we were talking about appropriate serving temperature and such? 
This week I treated the beers a little bit differently. They are dark ales. They always work better when they're warmer rather than ice cold. Uh, remember what happens when a beer is ice cold. The only thing you can taste is sweetness and bitterness. You miss everything else. Numbs your palate, closes the nose, impossible to fully evaluate. So this week, instead of the 40 pounds of ice actually in with the beer, it's just kind of on top, which means that the beers are actually a little bit warmer. They're still cool, but they're a little bit warmer than you might, uh, than you might get if they were immersed in ice. So as a judge, Judging dark ales, you're judging strong Belgians, you're drug judging um, beer styles that need to be warmed up, which is almost all of them. You can ask for them pulled out of the ice prior to your judging or just as you're starting with your first beer. And they'll sit out and they'll warm up just a little bit and you'll find that your judging goes along a lot more smoothly. Do you actually like to pull them all out at the, at the beginning? Depends on depends on the style. So it seems like you know you have ten stops in a, in a flight. You know, an hour and a half after you start, you're getting the. Yeah, but an hour and a half after I start, my palate's pretty fatigued. I need it pretty well. You know, it it's kind of goes with what your where your comfort level is. That's what it's just a judgment. If you're in a reasonably cool environment, you know, an air conditioned room, bring them out. They're not going to wear off that. Even in an hour, they'll come up by 15 to 20 degrees. So it'll be, you know, maybe in the mid 60s, uh, which is great because cellar temperature is just exactly what you want for most of those beers. Uh, barley wines, strong ales, that kind of stuff. Give them to me at room temperature. You know, it's always a lot better. Okay, we're going to be talking about beers tonight that. Everybody should be reasonably familiar with. Um, so this is going to be a little more casual. I want to hear some good tier two and tier three descriptors. Um, I'm not going to guide you guys as much as I would. I want you guys to use the guidelines tonight if you brought them. If you haven't, shame on you. Um, because one of the things that happens with really familiar styles is we get complacent, we get used to what our own palate is all about, and we forget that there are actually guidelines and things to think about.
the Middle East, and he said, oh, what's been going on? I said, I'm taking beer judging classes. So that's cool. And he said, I went down to the local thing a couple days later. So I went down to the local brew store and started asking questions about getting the judge certified. So I started saying them the questions that you sent out. Yeah. I haven't heard back from him yet. <laughs> well, you, you scared him to death. <laughs> He's all, sounds like fun. I was like, yeah. Sounds like fun. Now you sent him the damn questions. Yeah. Holy crap, what's this? <laughs> His first response was, that's cool. You get to tell people how much their beer sucks. <laughs> no, actually you get to tell people how much their beer is good. That's good. <laughs>
and they could control it. This is a beer I have no idea what to expect from. <laughs> but they're calling themselves old style porter, and St. Peter's typically does very, very good beers.
filled in actual, authentic English water. But how about the finish? 
drier. Seem drier than the, the previous two. It's kind of a hallmark of robust porters is it's got more hop. It may not be hoppy, but it's got more hop and it's going to finish drier. Any alcohol warming out of this? If you really press it, you might find some, but no, not really. And that's important. You don't want them to be alcohol warming. in these beers, what you guys have been seeing. Very pale tan to white-ish. As we will note later on, the color of Stout's head is typically darker tan. Roast malt tends to put more color in a head versus black malt and chocolate malt, which put relatively little color in the head. So a deep tan color on a porter usually indicates the presence of roast malt, where porters typically rely on black malt and chocolate malt for their, their flavors. From Sierra Nevada, it's probably not dry hopped, but it certainly is late hopped. The acidity, it's a much more acidic beer, a burnt flavor to it, um, and then and this is actually more balanced than they used to be. It used to be so heavy on the black malt that it was just burnt, burnt, smoky. Almost. This is bordering on, on stout. However, the color still, you can see through it. It's got some red highlights, garnet highlights. And the head color is light enough that you know that there's just chocolate malt and black malt there. But the hopping is very present. You guys getting the kind of almost resiny quality to the hopping, especially compared to the others? Unfortunately, this is kind of what people think of, or at least what judges think of, when they think of robust. They're looking for lots of hops. They're looking for lots of uh, black malt character. 
And as you guys can see from the examples we've had, it's a far more balanced style than that. Okay? So we're looking for more American character out of it. Yeah, even though the robust style is simply supposed to be a bigger, richer version of an English style, it should feature more of the dark moral character, more of the bitter chocolate. Um, but hopping is definitely an American take on A lot of hopping is an American take on um, I have one here that actually takes it to, to its ultimate extreme. <laughs> Has anybody had the Stone Eleven? They're billing it as a black IPA. Does anybody kind of get the irony of that? Well, I would say it was like a black pilsner. Yeah. Although I mean. I recall it was more to me like for like a... Well, it's a black India pale ale. Oh, yeah, I read the description. But, but my the word pale is in that word. <laughs> <laughs> so now, are you guys seeing at least one similarity from this beer to the last one? Head stand? Tan head. Yeah. Light tan head. Which indicates that there's really no roast malt in it, but there is black malt in this. With an extremely big hop nose. <laughs> a regular Jimmy Durante of a hop nose. <laughs> Well, they and they did make this to be an IPA. They made it to be, to make they made it to be extraordinarily hoppy. What it really is is a robust, robust porter. Well, when you did that, or I mean, it's me it was pouring on like a dark American barley wine. Yeah. I don't think it has quite the malt richness for that. It's a little too dry, um, but it certainly has a big hop presence like you would expect in, a, in an American barley wine. It's hard to know what to do with this, except that it's pure brewer creativity. But it struck me as simply being a late or dry hopped porter the other night. And one note you will make of dark beers in general is that they tend not, the classic versions tend not to be hop oriented. And this beer gives you a very good indication as to why. You get the acidity of the malt plus the bitterness of the hop and the two really kind of don't play well together. I mean, it's an interesting beer, but to have a lot of it is actually kind of hard to do. So it's not as drinkable as other beers might be. It's fun. Yeah, it's like year after. Yeah, once the hops go away, it could be. Why do hops die down? Yeah. Well, the aroma is more similar to the hops.
What are your thoughts on this beer? I mean, other than it's it's so hoppy, you can't concentrate really on any sort of malt flavor. Would you tell a brewer to cut back on hops? Because you will get robust porters like that. Maybe tell them to put them into a specialty imperial porter or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
well, AB, AB really locks, and, and Coors both really lock in their prices at the grower level. Um, they don't even bother with wholesalers. They are their own wholesaler. They will use some of the hop storage facilities, but typically they, they go right straight to the, to the brewers. So their prices are going to remain fairly stable, but that's going to jack it up for everybody else. Yeah, it's basically what's exactly happened because one of the main things that happened this year is not only did we run out of the storage of hops that we've had, we've had a three to five year backlog. I don't know if you guys have noticed how your hop alpha acids, especially towards the end of this year, have really been all over the map. And the color's been all over the map. It's because they're using up the last of stuff that's been around for like three to five years. And now we're dealing in basically all this year's crop. By December, it's going to be 100% crop 2007, which is pretty unusual. We don't usually get into new crop until like February. Um, and Anheuser-Busch gets a lot of their hops from Europe. And when a, uh, a hailstorm moved through Slovenia and pretty much wiped out 75% of the Styrian Goldings crop, Anheuser-Busch lost a major supplier of their hops. And instantly put out a spot call on a number of different hops, including Cascade, and soaked up on spot basically everything that was available for next year uh, that had not already been purchased. As a homebrew store, I've got a hop contract now. It's unheard of for a homebrew store. You know, I deal in less than a thousand pounds a year and I gotta have a hop contract. Un unbelievable. And I'm under pressure right now to put out a contract not only for 2008, but which I have, but for 2009 and 2010. That's, that's tough. That means they're going to be, everybody's going to be really using hops the way they ought to be used. High alpha hops for bittering, not much of them, a little bit for aroma, and working on balance. It's a seminal shift in in people's approach to beer. Just my prediction. Not that I actually have a working crystal ball, but that's what I think. Alright. Comments on quarters? They're still young. They're still A new style has come out of quarter. which all kinds of really cool names to them. And I actually believe that they are the best thing to happen to beer prices ever. Since they're all running right around a buck and a quarter to a buck ninety-nine a bottle, compared to four to five dollars for other stuff, Baltic Porters. Okay. With all of these interesting little names, and the one that's missing is Baltica number five, but the rest of these are all here. Zytec. Hawkinson. These are both classic examples. Eutinos uh, is also a classic example. They're virtually all classic examples. And they're really, really tasty. Basically what they are 
is the Russian Imperial Stout that didn't quite make it all the way to Russia. They're kind of the, the high-gravity approach that Russian Imperial is. For the lesser court, the non-Russians um, of the Baltics, they come out of Sweden, Finland, uh, Poland, almost like the, the lagers are more like a doppelbach with just more chocolate malt. Could be one Dark of the malts. sure. But we'll see that they do range in flavor. Um, personally, they're one of my favorite beer buys. Just are. And once that gets out there, once you know somebody like the New York Times goes, best value with beer, and it's 9%. <laughs> <laughs> Very full, full body. 
moderate to low carbonation. That's a very good description of these. These are not highly carbonated the way you would expect from a lager. Almost scotch-like, huh? Almost scotch-like. Yeah, this is... I would typically consider this kind of an alcohol profile in the aroma a fault. It would be okay to call it a fault. Port-like, scotch-like. This is Utenos. U T E N O S. Exceptional indulgence. Very sweet. Six point eight percent is all they claim. I think they. I think somebody has dyslexia. This one. I think it was that one. The fill levels. All the bottles were. Well, you know, it's that fine Baltic quality assurance program they have there. <laughs> it's exactly probably what it is. Yeah. Some guy named Yuri was on the bottling line. subtle differences. And a lot of that comes from some of the things we've talked about where judges tend to put an overemphasis on certain things um, or underemphasis on others. And we wind up with things like oatmeal stout that's supposed to taste like an oatmeal cookie, which we will find out is not true. Okay, so immediately there's a difference in aroma in this particular beer. Not as sweet, not as sherry, not as you know, not as alcoholic, and yet this is an 8.3 beer. 
So much more control in the alcohol. This reminds me of the Baltica. Yeah, Baltica is much closer to this too. Is anybody getting kind of a smokiness out of it? Oh yeah, like a little woody, a little bacony. A richness to them all. Not so Munich-y as the first one, but definitely a richness in the bittersweet chocolate sort of way. So where do you get the first one? Where do you purchase it? Is that not? Uh, Zweitek I got, Zweitek and Akisama both got it at Bevmo, which you can also get from Tico. And it's like, you know, about 50, about 99 a bottle. Paul Tico is number six. <coughs> Interesting, they go one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight. They miss five. I've never seen a Baltica five. Uh, can you drop Maybe that guy's Yeah. Two hands, one thumb. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> This is actually very typical of what Baltic porters are supposed to be about. They're rich, they're full-bodied, the alcohol is controlled, there is some warmth, but it's not overt the way the last example was. The last example would clearly probably be flawed, even though it does show up in the uh, classic examples list, I believe. Any other notes you guys are getting out of this?
But there's an awful lot of Guinness that is brewed in, in Ireland, and the reason is, is that in focus groups they found out that if they didn't have the word imported on it, it was less uh, desirable. So now we import it from Canada. Um, but Guinness is the original stout. And it should have porter-like qualities to it because it was first imported as Arthur Guinness's extra stout porter. So it was an, an exact response to porter as made in Dublin for export back into England. And that's the whole business plan. And he said because he has softer water than they had in London, London being the home of Porter, should that come up on the geography question, um, simply found that he had to make it a little bit darker, a little bit richer, a little bit bigger in order for it to export well, in order to make a decent beer. But he was essentially following a Porter restaurant. And so we can't really fault it for not having too dark of a head because... It is, again, a response to Porter. But try Murphy's, because it's a lot more along the lines of what many of you were explaining. So how do you make a Porter bigger? You make can add more proteins to it. After stouts, stout porters became popular because they were bigger beers, alcohol has always been fun to have. And where Guinness is right around 3.8%, um, it has less alcohol than a Budweiser, by the way. And just about as many calories as a Michelob Ultra. Um, they started to kind of play the alcohol war a little bit after that, making them bigger and bigger. Well, ultimately, as we found out with the Utenos Baltic Porter, there's a point at which you can start to make too much alcohol and not have enough, not have enough flavor to back it up. How to do that? Start adding more proteins. How do you do that? Well, one way is some different grains that add more proteins. So we enter oatmeal stout, which happened to wind up being the grain of choice because not only did it add more proteins and more body, but it added a silkiness that counteracted the acidity of the dark malts. When we smell it, do we smell any oatmeal? Does it smell like oatmeal? Correct. What do you smell? Roast. Coffee. Dark biscuity, that kind of thing. And look at the color, how tan, how deep, deeply tan that is. Yeah. 
definite impression of coffee in the flavor, but a silkiness that kind of goes with it. Just a little bit of a silkiness. Is anybody really getting any sweetness out of this? Not as good as you may think. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know. Um, the, uh, the nice thing is, is, yeah, you've got a lot of that, that uh, roastiness there and the acidity is there, but that silkiness just kind of gives it all a nice smooth texture, smooth finish, uh, roundness in there all the way through. You're not going to taste oatmeal. Brewers sometimes go to extremes of toasting the oatmeal and adding way too much until they can actually get flavor out of it, when in fact it is typically a texture additive. And the texture additive adds that body, adds that uh, fullness that is needed to keep up with the additional alcohol. This comes in right about 6%. The thing is, is that Michael Jackson equates sweet stouts with oatmeal stouts. He puts them in the same category. In the BJCP, we separate them out. I think there's valid reasons for separating them out. I've never really had an oatmeal stout that qualifies quite as well as a sweet stout. Um, perhaps the closest is um, Young's double chocolate stout, which is clearly a sweet stout, very much in the chocolate category, almost into a specialty category. Has a slight amount of oatmeal to it for creaminess, but it's very much in the sweet category. Uh, but it still falls far, far short of the kind of sweetness that you expect from a real sweet stout. Cream stout, aka milk stout, mother's stout or grandmother's stout, kind of giving you a hint as to who they were aiming this market at, uh, has a distinct sweetness to it. What are you getting? Coffee and sherry. Sherry. Cream. Getting kind of a creaminess out of it. Sweetness. Smelling sweetness. And 
taste. Lots of cream to it. More of that silkiness than you might get from an oatmeal stout, which is primarily the contribution of it, but oftentimes distinctly sweet. This is, I think, a fabulous cream stout of St. Peter's. Fabulous cream stout, but not quite the same as what was basically a heritage cream stout that I had from Watney's. <coughs> Watney's probably made the most classic example of any example I've ever had. It was just almost milky in the creaminess and the sweetness. Where's Watney's out of? Uh, Watney's is now out of business. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but they're out of Watney's Red Barrel. No. It doesn't exist anymore. You can't get it. It's not even produced. Watney's Red Barrel, by the way, has the singular distinction of being what actually created camera. So much outrage came from the fact that they called it a red barrel real ale when it was a filtered semi-lager beer that they created camera. <laughs> Campaign for real ale. Getting lucky. Um, so, don't you love how I just pull this trivia out just because you guys make comments? <laughs> and I don't even touch my ass when I do it. What do you know? <laughs> it's not coming out of my ass. Anyway, no, it's uh also the favorite beer of Monty Python. What, Watney's? Yeah. Well, yes. Multiple references to Watney's Red Barrel. Yes, but they're just they're they're defunct now too. No, they're not gonna have all fourteen DVDs. But the the um, the sweetness is nice. Um, it's creamy. It does counteract the acidity, and this was this is generally has been historically considered a woman's drink, proper woman's drink. Um, but I like it. One of the things I like about the St. Peter's is, is that. Unlike the Watney's, it does have a real distinctive smokiness to the finish from Rose Mall. That the Watney's was a little more balanced, a little more um, sweet. The sweetness in this style comes from lactose. Lactose being a non-fermentable sugar by regular beer yeast. However, if you make a sweet style with lactose, Hopefully your sanitation is pristine because lactobacillus loves lactose. It's what creates buttermilk. It's what creates sour cream. <laughs> you know, it's the conversion of lactose into lactic acid that is what lactic, lactobacillus is made for. Um, when I do make a sweet stout, and I do from time to time, my particular technique is to split my batch into two kegs, um, two, two and a half, and before serving, when I tap each one of them, I add the lactose with a little bit of water right into it. It gets sweet, and then the time it takes for uh, me to serve it out, you know, nothing's happened, and then I go to the next keg and I treat it the same way. And that way, basically, the beer has, you know, not as much time to turn sour. <clears throat> to go bad, to go hard. 
which was the term I was searching for earlier tonight, when a beer goes from mild, which is not sour, to being sour, it's considered staling or hardening. Um, a lot of stouts, or some stouts, historically stouts, used a staled beer, which is what um, Guinness does to create its beer. They add a portion of staled beer back into the mash, mostly as a pH adjustment. I've never really been able to taste the lactic acid in there. Some people say they can. You know, I don't disbelieve them. It's just never been anything that's been upfront to me. It just creates a drier impression with that little bit of acidity in there. How old of a beer they, I mean, what do they consider a stale beer? How old? Um, I, I know that they take a portion of every batch and inoculate it into a, a special uh, fermenter that is inoculated 100% with lactobacillus. So it's, it is already fermented beer. It's not fermented, or not filtered, rather, and ends up over there in the staling tank. And there's lactobacillus, or I'm sorry, Britannomyces in there, and that, that beer is run through a filter and back into the mash. So how long it takes, I don't know. It could be a couple of months, but they're continually adding to it every day, and I'm sure they've achieved some kind of balance by the inflow and the outflow. Right. So then after the oil, there's no life or Britannomyces. Right. right. Yeah, there, there is no Britannomyces added to the actual fruit. So it doesn't add to the fermentation at all? No. Just whatever flavor is there and whatever pH adjustment it gives it, lowering the pH a little bit because of the acidity. And they get what they need out of it, and it's done. <laughs> okay, before we move on, one beer style when we did dark lockers that I uh, omitted on purpose was Schwarz beer. Schwarz beer is kind of um, Germany's answer to stout. And they don't really answer it very well. <laughs> or some may say they've made dramatic improvements on it. So it kind of depends on your perspective.
How is it in the taste? Schwartz beer until after stout was was invented, and it really is sort of like a lagerized weak porter. But this is the Germans' interpretation of stout. Lager yeast, okay, they got the color. It's darker than than uh, Dunkel, but definitely moves more towards the chocolate notes. Still. The important thing about a Schwarz beer is, is you should not ever expect any roast notes in it at all. It should be reasonably neutral when it comes to the, uh, the malt profile, perhaps tilting more towards Munich malt or toastiness, but never towards coffee or, or smoky sorts of flavors. I used to get this from friends, they brought this. Of course, they just haven't seen it that much. Like they had like a Grolsch type top. And I just I said, you know, this is. It was more like a porter. It had the roast notes, most like chalky, but it wasn't anything. Didn't have the culture in it. Yeah, this is. And I, and I would swear, I would say probably I didn't, didn't say on the bottle. It probably did not was not fermented with water and yeast. I guess we're going to have it in the like the Well, this clearly has a lager profile. Oh yeah. It was they. They had this one and that one. It was like day and night. So what happens to a beer when they decide that it's so good at home that they have to export it? When we hear the word export, what do we think? Stronger. Stronger. Perhaps. But it's stronger in what? And if we're going to have more alcohol, what do we need to uh, balance it? Maybe more hops, but certainly more. Yes. As the Utenos proves to us, we need more malt. encompasses two distinct styles. Foreign stout, that is for export, and tropical stout, which is not typically for export. Tropical stout, believe it or not, for tropical islands, the Caribbean, that kind of thing, they'll make a stout, but they will tilt it towards sweet. Keep the alcohol, they'll keep the color, they keep the flavor, but they tilt it towards sweet. So what are your impressions of this particular beer, though? A little more malty in the nose. If you imagine a beer that is this kind of powerful flavor with the sweetness of the St. Peter's, you would have a tropical style. 
and has a big bitter in the aftertaste. Yeah, quite a bit more bitter in the aftertaste. Yeah. This is Guinness This is Guinness for an extra. This is what everybody used to think of was, was what Guinness was all about because it's all we could get before they invented the widget. So nothing improved. What do you mean nothing improved? Oh, that's we funky little beer they call Guinness McCann. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, nothing. It's an insult to this stuff. Perhaps the bitter. Mm. I like the bigger, the stronger, the more bitter. Yeah, I consider this the younger, lesser educated cousin of the other one. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, more robustness, more coffee, more alcohol, more everything in order to survive the trip. For an extra. Don't confuse this with dry stout. Dry stout is not really a wimpy beer. It is it is a really good stand-up beer. Um, can have considerably more flavor than the Guinness does. Like I said, I should have brought Murphy's, but you have it. Um, an awful lot of judges develop foreign extra stout as their idea of what dry stout ought to be. And that's flawed thinking. So again, be very careful that you're not looking for just big beers when it is a robust style. It still should be balanced and should still should be within style. Those widgets tend to tone everything down a little bit too, right? Because of the nitrogen. Well, nitrogen yeah, yeah nitrogen adds a creaminess to that. Well. I never get the same effervescence with nitrogen as I do with CO2. I can never right. take because the smell nitrogen, as much, right? Because the nitrogen displaces the CO2. Okay. So uh, the reason is that the atmosphere is made up of seventy percent nitrogen. It doesn't really need any more, so it stays in. Okay. That's the beer that we got. Well, they talk. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
First comments on aroma? Coffee? Sweetness? Color and appearance?
I should tell you a really funny story about this thing. <laughs> <laughs> ah, now I know, yes. There we go. You should have been here at all the meetings. Okay. So, um, Grant had nine of these beers left in the refrigerator, and he was planning to send them to three different competitions, so three each, so a perfect amount left, right? And um, my mom and my aunt came to visit, and they got dropped off from the airport to my apartment about 20 minutes before I came home from work. And I walk in and I see one of his beers un uncapped and empty on the counter. And he was out of town. I was like, oh my God, he's going to kill me. <laughs> but I was like, oh, what's wrong? It was really, really good. Where'd you get this beer? I was like, oh no. Another funny thing is they built like a little shrine before he got back to, to show it that it died. <laughs> in remembrance that everyone loved it. You know, it's kind of touching. Flowers, candles. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to do one more little homebrew. Just improvement. You think it should score higher? Well, yeah. You're taking 13 points off when you don't suggest or pinpoint any flaws. A flawed a flawed beer is different than a beer. You can have a beer that you don't necessarily want to give improvement points to, but still not score it in the mid or high 40s. Simply put, the the balance, you know, that balance there. My particular point would be to to lower the amount of um, oatmeal to reduce the viscosity, because I think the viscosity kind of interfered with some of the flavor. I had to reach for a lot of the flavor. So while yeah, that might weigh in. It, you know, four or five points worth of difference, still the overall balance of that beer, there's kind of a magic quality to beers that that hit 40 and above. And when you have a really good classic example in good shape, there's an intangible quality you can't describe that just says, oh yeah, this is it. This is This is exactly where it ought to be. It won't necessarily be a 50-point beer, but it will be a world-class example. And you'll have the occasional homebrew that hits that magic something. But most don't. Grant's beer was a very good beer. There were no technical issues. There might have been some recipe issues. And some of that might have even been personal preference. But there was absolutely no shame, and it had every chance of being a, a blue ribbon winner at the score we were talking about. 
Okay? Has every chance of going on to best of show. Has every chance of, of being something uh, worth a shrine. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just, it's a challenging question, and it's a challenging question I would put to you to say, well, if you can't give me any improvement, why didn't you give it a 50? Um, and because of, because of where I might do that. But you can say, well, yeah, but there's an intangible quality that it was kind of missing that would equate to, and you should be able to name a particular example that has that intangible quality. So you're really kind of getting into some very, very finesse-oriented issues when it comes to judging. Um, but a valid question, nonetheless. Okay, this particular beer is a brown port. Still a value. Aroma? Expect that? That smokiness out of a brown porter? Okay. Appearance? Yep. Deep ivory to pale tan kind of head, which you would expect from the style. So, seems like the right malts were used. No hop in the aroma. How is it in flavor? Difficult after the last one. <laughs> but the, the hop from the last one and the, the bitterness is still hanging in there. Is it? I think we went from all direction. I think we should have done this one first. Well, that's a good observation. But you didn't have that chance. Yeah. <laughs> um, although, what are you getting in this in terms of flavor? I'm detecting some caramel malt, maybe a little bit of rancid butter. and there's definitely kind of a buttery note to it. There's a diacetyl issue in this particular beer. Um, but I think the base recipe is just fine. I think the hops are subdued enough. I think the recipe is fine. I think the, uh, uh, the chocolate malt note that's in here is pretty good. Um, the diacetyl is not working so well in its favor um, and is definitely there in the, in the aroma in the form of almost a, a butterscotchy kind of a note. Uh, perhaps not the best example of style, and obviously the critique would be, what have we talked about for diacetyl? You can't get a diacetyl rest in, in an ale because you're already there. So therefore we want to let the fermentation complete before it is transferred or bottled, or perhaps 
roust the yeast. Okay? Um, or pick a strain that's less prone to diacetyl. This might very well be an English shale strain. There you go. And it was better two months ago. <laughs> it was better two months ago, yeah, before the oxygen got to it. Okay. So got if, it. if the diacetyl becomes more pronounced, though, can you say uh, possibly uh, PDO coming into play there? Yes, but you would start to be looking for some sourness. You'd start to be looking for some uh, vegetal notes, other things that go along with PDO. Okay. There's oftentimes, and that's a good point, there are, as you get more experienced, there will be times when you realize, oh, there's a combination of flavors that easily add up to this as being the cause. But absent that, I have to go with the simplest explanation. I doubt that he's got a PDO infection. There would be a lot more tart. Um, it would be, the butter would be a lot more apparent. Um, even if this was in the early stages, there would be a vegetal or, or a change in the malt construct and in, and in the overall body, uh, especially because it would tend to use up the dextrins. So it would wind up becoming a lot drier than it is. I did not use a starter. It was two vials of O2 yeast. It was a last-minute deal. My wife was sick, and I was home with the kids and decided to beer. <laughs> and she screwed it up on my stars because I had to take one of the kids to swim practice. <laughs> and when Kevin first tried it, he said it smelled and tasted like green apples, which he didn't taste tonight. So it's changed. Since so it has changed. Tried it. Yeah. So the acetaldehyde has has fixed itself. And it's moving into diacetyl. Lucky me. <laughs> Not that. I and mean, beers do evolve. I mean, a beer that might not be very good right now might be excellent in two or three months, so don't toss it. Like that. <laughs> okay. <sighs> All right. That's the homebrews for now. We'll have another one later. Um, so, four and extra. We went for four and extra, more robustness, more flavor, that kind of thing. Lest you think that I'm just randomly picking out bottles of beer from here, there's a method to my madness in this. I talk a lot about flavor memory. I do believe that over the course of two years, you should have a flavor memory of what you tasted with foreign extra stuff. You should be remembering what that flavor was. Flavor memory is your ability to conjure up what it was you had before and how that fits style and measure your next beer to what you've had. Not to what you've just had, but what you've had previously in your life. Um, you'll find that certain beers are more memorable, than, more memorable than others, like when you're able to actually travel to where they're made, but oftentimes it's simply going to be an experience that you've had. So we're going to move from foreign extra stout into American stout. And I want to know two things. One, how are these similar? And two, how are they different?
have a question. On my beer, the other thing I remember is that my initial sparks start off at too high of a temperature. People would comment with that effect. Extraction of tannins and such. Probably not terribly a lot early on. Um, well, mostly because you got enough buffers still in there to, to not be an issue. I was just having this conversation with somebody else, too, that it really kind of matters where you end in your sparge rather than where you begin as far as tannin uh, extraction is concerned. Okay, so first difference is in aroma. What's the difference? Yep, hop expression. How's this compared to, say, the... Um, the IBA. Much mellower. Much mellower, yes. Interesting enough, I expect more of an American hop characteristic, like a cascade. There's an awful lot of American hops. So to expect cascade is to do an archetype uh, judging, meaning that you are judging to one exacting standard, such as you would with California Common to Anchor Steam. But the style isn't an archetype style. While Cascade might be common, maybe it's even well, in there. Style guidelines say a piney, resiny, or superseding. Aroma may be present. I don't think it says has to be present. But a more distinctive coffee-like espresso note is in this. And that's, I think, a real hallmark of the American um, stout style. It's much more robust in terms of that malt expression. The hop expression may be there, but I, I honestly think the, the uh, malt expression needs to dominate. And there's definitely a hop in there. There's a greenness, there's a grassiness in there. How's the appearance? Anybody want to name the color? Chocolate brown, chestnut brown, mahogany. Walnut brown. Um, mouthfeel. What's the deciding factor in this particular mouthfeel? Definite carbonation. Is it dry? Is there a hot bite? More so, I think there's more hot bite here than there is in the foreign extra. It's not super pronounced. Flavor, how's the flavor compared to foreign extra? Plus Sweeter, resiny. Well, there's some resiny just to it, but fruitiness. There's definite fruitiness to this. There's some raisin in there. Maple. 
this one again? Not really. There's 
some acidity, but not bad. The sweetness kind of balances that out. Balance? Not just yes. Where is the balance going? For the ball. More to the ball. More toward the ball. What do you suppose you would think if this was your first beer? Where would you be talking? Because at this point, it's a little fatigued. Probably be talking about more hops. You'd probably be getting a little more hop bite out of it. You'd definitely be getting more coffee and more acidity out of it. It wouldn't be quite so round. This is one of those places, this is one of those styles, porter and stuff, where you definitely want to keep some kind of calibration beer where you can adjust your palate as you go. Because my, my flavor memory of this particular beer is not nearly as sweet as I'm tasting. <coughs> so I know that this it actually is a more dry beer than we're tasting. But we're getting so used to the acidity, so used to all of the, that flavor in there, that it's very easy to detect the malt sweetness and very hard to detect the core flavor. So why don't we continue the palate busting <laughs> with Russian Imperial Stout. Russian Imperial Stout is a, an English invention for export, which automatically means what? Stronger, Stronger in <coughs> and this was the a style that was solicited by Russia because they, they couldn't grow much grain on the frozen tundra. Um, it may not be a, a pristine example, but again, it's Samuel Smith, so it came all the way over. If I really slow Probably came to us by way of Singapore. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's very woody. It's oxidized. Um, usually it's, it's characterized by really rich malt. You can see that even in the small samples that we have, it's got a pretty rich head um, and carrying lots of it. So that is an indicator of strength. Um, it does somewhat try to form legs. Not as much as, I, as it might do. <laughs> in beer, you don't get legs until you hit about 11%. And that's mostly due to the viscosity of beer. With wine, you can start to see legs at about 8%. And in beer, it takes about 11% because it takes that much alcohol to kind of thin things out. It's, it barely wants to try to form them. It's not quite there. Um, the aroma is quite oxidized, then you kind of viney and woody. 
where you might expect it to be cleaner. How's the appearance, though? the oxidation part of it in there that's very woody and not pleasant, but how is the malt? Huge, biscuity. Biscuity, rich, huge. It is big. Even, even though it's not as alcoholic as it probably ought to be, um, it's still rich. It's still got a lot of viscosity. Not a lot of slickness, but a lot of viscosity. Um, I know that if the oxidation wasn't there, that it would be a lot more coffee, a lot more biscuity, a lot more toasty, a lot more coldness to it. But virtually no hop anywhere through it. Very, very low. Not sweet per se, like cloying sweet, but definitely a sweetness. Um, just kind of a, a poor example, I'm not a very well held, handled example. So we'll move on to what is probably the very best West Coast example we can get. The arch nemesis of the Russian court. Rasputin, who ironically didn't live to be that old. He was hard to kill, though. You guys know that story? They tried to assassinate Rasputin, so they stabbed, they poisoned him, and he woke up. <laughs> so they stabbed him, and he fell for a while. And then got us. So they shot him. They shot him six times. And it was like straight out of Monty Python. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> so they finally wrapped him up in a bag. How many more do I need? Four. They wrapped him up in a bag and threw him in the river where he floated for about a half a mile before he finally died. <laughs> Rasputin was the soothsayer to the Russian court, particularly of um, Queen Catherine. And his main claim to fame was the ability to heal hemophilia in the young Alexander. But on the other hand, he was also really good at spending the royal money on orgies. So he was quite the womanizer. Okay. So, aroma? Quite a bit hoppier, which is not characteristic of style, but it is characteristic of the American versions of style. Um, the Australians have a 
a joke of, oh yeah, you want to make anything American, just add more hops. So, it sure has plenty of hop aroma. So, aroma. Are you getting any raisin? Any vinuousness? Alcohol? Appearance? <coughs> What's the color of the head? How about the texture? Creamy. Deep tan. Well, yeah, deep tan. Leathery tan. This tends to be the color of head that you see in an awful lot of dry stuffs that come into competition. So it's a little bit, you know, it would be a little bit dark in that style, but perfectly appropriate in this style. Mouthfeel? <laughs> Mouthfeel, creaminess? Lots of alcohol warmth. Is it fusel in any way? Very warming. So it's not harsh. It's quite warming. It's appropriately warming, which you would expect from the style. Finish. Dry, sweet. Dry. Yeah, definitely the acidity comes through in the finish. Flavor. Kind of sweet up front, lots of roast to it. Any hop flavor? Yes. Oh, yes. Lots of hop flavor. Almost resinous. Huge amount of resinous grassiness to it. Would you find that to be appropriate to style? Not classically. Right. Um, hop bite? Bitterness kind of thing? Aftertaste? How's the finish? How's the aftertaste? Quite a hoppy finish. Overwhelms the um, the vinuousness and the, the roastiness, doesn't it? Suggestions for improvement?
Martian Imperial Stout. Aroma. Somebody's thinking bananas. Other aromatics. I get caramel and toffee. I get nuts out of it. Kind of a rust, uh, roasted walnutty sort of note. Yeah, like a walnut bread kind of. Yeah, very bready. Yeah, bread crust, banana bread, walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> Getting any um, undertones of other undertones of malt? Any sort of a pale malt or or a uh, coffee note? Yeah, Munich. Yeah, I'm getting a Munich note. Okay, appearance. Almost jet, jet black. black. Yeah. Opaque, jet black. Is clarity important to this style? Not per se. However, you don't want it to be a muddy color. You don't want it to be kind of a mushy color. You want, which might indicate either proteins or might indicate uh, yeast. You want it to have a sharpness to that that color, and that's what this has. So it's it would be considered clear. Well, you really can't see through it. It's not transparent. But it's a sharp black opaque. The banana really conserves the flavor. Sweet. Quite sweet. Syrupy, sweet. Is it syrupy? It's in cloying? Not really cloying. I do get very malty sweet. Um, could almost be a Baltic porter. Okay, hmm. I think it might be a little too roasty for that. Um, I'm getting a definite roast out of it, not quite so much a chocolate note, a very sweet chocolate, but definitely a sweet coffee note. A little not graininess. A little graininess to it. Fullness of body, but not slick. Um, the fade tends to be the fade tends to move quite dry, not nearly the toffee notes that I might expect from a Baltic porter. Um, definitely into the kind of roasty notes. Uh, there's a nice alcohol warmth to it. It's not fusel, which is interesting because the fruitiness would indicate what. Perhaps a slightly high fermentation temperature. But it doesn't have the fusel to support that theory too well, does it? So what else might cause a lot of esters? Malt. Well, yeah, yeast. But what else? What, what about the yeast might cause a lot of esters? What would stress the yeast into creating esters? Low pitch. So proper fermentation temperature, perhaps a low pitch. 
didn't quite have enough yeast cells for the original gravity. What would you expect for an original gravity of a uh, Russian Imperial? 1080 and above. 1080 and above. Good. Generally, where do you think a Humber is going to be? Especially if it's got this much kind of a sticking your lips together kind of a texture. Upper's 90, so I'm thinking, of, yeah, right around 100. And so basically, that's double what you would, ex that's double the, the gravity that you would expect from a normal beer, where you might tell somebody about a pint of slurry for five gallons would be an appropriate pitch. Therefore, you might want to tell them this time a quart. You know, a quart of slurry would be their appropriate pitch and oxygenated well. Um, doesn't have the acetylaldehyde, but I think it's been left to age a long time. But it does have the esters, and those two things usually indicate a slightly underpitched beer. Could you fully underpitched beer? Yes. Could you get it from uh, the use of a lot of, you know, Munich and Vienna's? If you use enough of those, are you going to get malt esters? Is there such things? Oh, there's definitely malt esters. All you have to do is go over to uh, a bucket of extract and take a whiff, and you're going okay. to find all kinds of malt esters. Okay. Malt itself is very fruity, but it's not banana. Okay. It kind of moves towards somewhat tropical fruitish, um, not banana-type tropical. I mean, like papaya, guava kind of stuff. Um, so, yes, there's a definite influence of malt fruitiness over yeast fruitiness, and it's not one that's well discussed or well discovered by judges. But if you smell enough extracts, you realize, oh, there's a lot of fruitiness to these things, um, which does translate to the finished beer. So... Having said that, though, I still think that's a better example of style than the last one. General Graspy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, minus the esters would be an outstanding example style. So how close did we get? Well, there's no, you know, it's two row, but then there's chocolate, roast, black, oatmeal, groves, cut oats, or white oats, for texture. Uh, starting gravity was 104. Declining sweetness and just beat it down. Uh, <laughs> well, surprise, I mean, I, I picked up the banana notes too, which is surprising because I didn't pick them up before. And then again, I may just back up and look, no one else looking for them. But um, California ale yeast. How old is it? Uh, it was brewed last November. November what was the size of the pitch? That I would have to check. I don't recall if, because typically when I do a big one like this, I will do like the uh, Irish Drive first. And I'll pitch right onto the yeast cake of the, of the Irish dry. Sometimes. Uh, I don't know if I did that with this one, I'll do that, and then I'll maybe pitch another vial of California, so I'll have the actual Irish and the California mix in terms of yeast. So the Irish would actually be the dominant yeast because it's the higher population. But one vial is like whistling in a hurricane. I can 
tropical fruit. Fermentation so temperature was okay though? We noted. I'm, it should have been, yeah. I'm, I'm questioning that just because it was according to um, the thermometer at the uh, thermal well and whatnot, but I'm getting the question whether my thermal well is reading accurately. And if it's not actually uh, fermenting a little bit higher. Have you ever done either boiling water or an ice bath test on it? No, you suggested that and I haven't had opportunity to do that. I haven't brewed since. Submerge so your, um, your thermal well in ice, um, let it get good and cold, and put a dairy thermometer in there too just to kind of double check it. And you'll find that it should read right around zero degrees Celsius, or at least you should calibrate it to zero degrees yeah. Celsius. In ice bath, Calibration is generally considered more uh, accurate than oil. Um, as an aside story, I had opportunity to calibrate a bunch of my thermometers. I had four thermometers to calibrate. And uh, mostly because I was having some frustration with, with how a couple of thermometers were tracking with each other where they should have been much closer together, they weren't. And at first I did a boil method and then took them outside and let them all sit at about, you know, an evening of at about 60 degrees. And one was reading 68, the other was reading 58, the other was reading, you know, 63, one was reading right at 60. And so I took them all back in and recalibrated them all to an ice bath and took them back outside. And they all started tracking within about a degree of each other. So, uh, you know, you do want to calibrate your thermometers from time to time, at least once a year. They do drift. Things happen. That's all the beers I've got. There will be a mock exam on Sunday the 29th.